This episode of This Changes Everything is presented by the Crosscut Festival, May 3rd through the 8th, online and in Seattle. When you were coming up, what was your relationship like with the police? <laughs> um, I hated the police. They were the, they were the mortal enemies, man. I I've, I've had my jaw fractured by the police, bro. I've I've been in battle rams. I've been in I've gotten beaten and abused in in um jail cells, handcuffed, beat down, blood, you know. I've been through that. I've watched my friends get brutalized. I've I've had friends that have been killed by the police, you know. I hated the police, man. I I couldn't stand them. This is Dominique Davis. He sat down for a call with Crosscut staff reporter David Croman recently. I'm the CEO and founder of an organization called Community Passageways. We're a felony diversion program and a, a number of other things that we do on our, under our banner. Community Passageways was actually only officially founded a few years ago. Started out dealing with the school to prison pipeline. But yeah, there are a whole range of things it does now. Uh, having programs in a handful of schools in South King County doing some culturally relevant curriculums there, uh, family support, student support, uh, building out black student unions. Then we uh, are doing peacemaking in healing circles, providing spaces for young people to be able to be open and be themselves. Fundamentally, the organization supports young people who need everything from mentors and counselors to housing and jobs and legal support. We also do diversion work um, only on, on the felony level. We usually work on a lot of high-end felonies as these are often young people who might otherwise spend a ton of time in prison. Um, you know, gun charges, drive-by shootings, just like, just a lot of the um, stuff that most organizations don't, don't deal with, we like to deal with uh, our staff are mostly built from people that have been through the prison industrial complex one way or another. And uh, we uh, provide them a living wage, healthcare package training, and let them go back into communities to heal the community that they uh, came from. And Davis, you might say, created the organization he wished he'd had as a teenager. Davis grew up in Seattle, and he says he grew up fast. I had my mom in my life, and I had some uncles and aunts, but I just hit the streets really early. I just had this attitude of wanting to be a grown man at a very early age. And so I was running the streets at a very early age. I started smoking weed and drinking and all this stuff before I was even double digits, before I was 10 or 11 years old, right? And so... um. I kind of got put out and was put in these streets around 13 years old to kind of almost fend for myself in a way. I mean, I got my first apartment. I had an 18-year-old girlfriend, so I got my first apartment as soon as I was about 14, going on 15. Bought my first car at 14. Um, Had my first baby at 16. You know, I was paying rent and bills and taking care of myself at an early age, and I was hustling in the streets to do it. And so I spent my whole life in the streets. Um, but I had, I had a big vision and a big dream to go to play college football and go to the NFL, right? Davis says he missed out on that dream. It's complicated, but basically it boils down to this. No one showed him there was another way. If one adult sat me down and said, I'm going to provide a place for you to live, I'm going to provide some income for you. I'm going to provide food, clothes, whatever. I'm gonna, and all you have to do is go to school, work out, play sports, and go to college. If I had one person sit me down and say that, I, my, I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now. 
So what made me do what I do is I said, I don't want to see anybody else lose their vision and their dream the way I lost mine. We, I want to support as many young people as I can to go after their dreams, right? And, we, and, I, and we'll provide those basic needs for them. And that, to Dominique Davis, is public safety. His work is preventative work. He's seen a lot of lives lost to gun violence, for example. And policing, as he knows it anyway, has never done much to change that. I, I lost so many friends to death, to murder, right? I, back to back to back, funeral after funeral after funeral, going up through the 90s, 80s, late 80s, and the 90s and all that, all the gangs. It was just crazy, bro. We were at three funerals on one weekend sometimes, you know? What he believes can actually reduce crime and improve public safety is surrounding people who need help, any kind of help, with as much of it as possible. It, whatever it is, man. They call us, man. They call us and talk to us. We go meet with them. We pick them up. We'll go eat. We'll hang out. We'll go to their house. Whatever it is we got to do to make sure that they're going to be okay. It's unconditional, man. So diversion is not just court systems work. It's also uh, humanity work, you know, empathy work and, and unconditional love work. And it has always been that, as long as Davis has been doing it. But the question now, all of a sudden, is can Davis, can anyone do this kind of work fully enough so that it can actually begin to replace the police. I'm Sarah Bernard, and this is This Changes Everything, a podcast from Crosscut about the new normal. So Dominique Davis is just one example of someone who's been involved in the conversation around criminal justice reform and systemic racism long before this past summer. Community Passageways is not an emergency crisis response, not exactly, but its aim on a fundamental level is, and has always been, to be an alternative to cops and courts. So David Croman called up Dominique Davis, as well as Sean Good, who runs another felony diversion program for young people in the region called Choose 180. We wanted to get a better sense of what these guys are thinking right now, now that the city of Seattle is listening in a whole new and urgent way to the stuff they've been saying for years. Because for them, and a number of other advocates in Seattle, these visions of community safety without police are not that new, and they're not that radical. But they're not just about reallocating the many tasks that maybe police shouldn't be doing. They're also about better addressing what they see as the root causes of crime, and the systems that criminalize those root causes. To them, the system as it exists right now just isn't working very well. Stay with us. So like David was talking about back in the first episode of this series, there are a number of ways to look at the phrase defund the police. And one approach is pretty literal. There are people who feel less safe around police, people who've witnessed or been the subject of police violence or misconduct, for instance, or who just haven't seen a clear benefit from the institution as it exists. There's the group of people who means take their money away, abolish the police, or at least cut them by 50 percent. And that in and of itself is a good thing, that police are harmful enough that by defunding the police, we are making the world a better place. Those beliefs are often informed by life experiences. And of course, not everyone who's had bad experiences with the police wants to totally abolish them. It's a spectrum, really. Sean Good is somewhere on that spectrum, not an abolitionist, but definitely wary of the police. My name is Sean Good. I steward an organization called Choose 180, where we're actively working to transform systems of injustice while 
supporting the young people who are impacted by those systems. Candidly, being a black man has informed my outlook. Have I had negative interactions? Certainly. I remember a time in South King County where I had recently gotten paid, so I had my paycheck in an envelope and with the cash on me, and I was crossing a street at a crosswalk and got pulled over by a police because I didn't wait for the hand to tell me to go. And he emptied out my pockets and questioned me about the cash that I had and, 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 and kept me there for a long period of time unnecessarily, even though I wasn't in the commission of committing any type of crime. Um, or I remember as a child, right, like watching my father, who was causing harm to our family, get arrested and put in the back of a police car. But once he was released, he didn't stop being abusive. It didn't actually solve for anything. It just delayed the inevitable, which was him still working out his anger, his addiction and mental health issues by harming our family. And so like those are two instances that come to mind immediately. But it's a larger narrative of shared experiences and generational trauma that informs the way that I respond when being engaged by a law enforcement officer. I, I don't have too many memories that I hold on to fondly and say that was a gold standard approach and I left that circumstance or that situation feeling confident that my life wasn't at risk or that I wasn't going to experience any undue harm as a result of this engagement. Statistically speaking, in Seattle and across the country, you are more likely to have negative interactions with law enforcement or, frankly, any kind of interaction with law enforcement if you're a person of color. You're more likely to be impacted by incarceration if you're a person of color. And that likelihood goes up if you're Black or Native. About 40% of the population of the King County Jail at any given time is Black, for instance, although only roughly 7% of the population of King County is. Both Davis and Good work with hundreds of young people every year who are facing criminal charges. Most of those kids are Black or Brown. We got people that have been sentenced at 15 and 16 years old for 35 and 40 years. And what, 85% of them are black and brown folks. What does that tell you, man? Public safety ain't really public safety. Public safety is a prison industrial complex that has brought back Jim Crow and slavery, bro. The majority of young people that we support are referred to us from the prosecuting attorney's office. And young people don't make it to the prosecuting attorney's office unless their behavior is being criminalized first by law enforcement officers. And law enforcement officers overly police communities that are black and brown, which contribute to the disproportionality we see uh, through the prosecutor's office and throughout the courts. I'll try to make it a short story. Dominique Davis, for one, has had plenty of interactions with law enforcement himself, in part because he started supporting himself from a very young age and sold illegal drugs to do it. This part of his life is far behind him, but still. The stories he remembers aren't pretty. Um, I was um, I was selling dope and everything, and we had a, a trap house, a trap apartment, where uh, we were selling drugs out of and whatnot, kind of selling drugs out of. We were that's kind of our home spot. And the police, he says, knew about it. They were watching the place. One night, Davis went out to buy some booze for the evening. I came back from the liquor store and um, handed the bag full of alcohol over the balcony, and then I went around to the door to go inside, and so I go inside. Now, police got us under surveillance. They figure I done went and picked up everything and made the, made the drop, right? And um, I'm in the bathroom, using the bathroom. All of a sudden, I hear, SPD or something, boom, 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 and they batter me up, boom, knock the door off the hinges, come running in, whatever. And 
grab everybody and... What Davis describes at this point is a disturbingly violent interaction and one that we've not been able to verify. So I'll just have to leave you with this. Davis claims he was released from jail later that night, bruised and bloodied. I mean, I'll just give you that. That's just an example. I just just how the police operate, you know. They, I don't know, you know, I haven't had no runs with the police in a very long time, but back then they operated real crooked, real shady. I mean, it was just crazy, man. I can tell you a bunch of stories, man, a bunch of them. I'm just telling you that story because it's more mild than the ones I could tell you. Needless to say, these kinds of experiences informed Davis's outlook. But these days, his focus isn't on police misconduct, per se. It's on the much bigger picture. Black folks have been trying to protest and rally and, and get mad for, <laughs> for years. The only difference with this movement was white folks, Asian folks, and every other ethnicity joined the movement. Now we got this rash of police killing black people, which has always been happening, which has been happening on a daily basis for over a hundred years, right? For hundreds of years. It's always happened. It's just now it's getting caught on video. It's just now people are seeing it on YouTube and social media. It's just now we got tools for people to actually see. This is what we've been talking about for the last 400 goddamn years. And because of what we did over the summertime, there's been a lot of changes that's been happening, bro. A lot of changes that's happening. And these politicians are listening. And they're, and they're standing up going, what else, what else you need us to do? What else can we do for you? Of course, in Seattle, that's what it looks like anyway. The city council is listening. Seattle officially slices the police budget. The mayor is listening. We've now got cuts to the SPD budget in 2021 that haven't been seen in decades, maybe ever. SPD will have to make do with much less. And you've got money on the table to spend on research and investment in community-based alternatives, as well as a participatory budgeting process where Seattle residents get to weigh in on how some money is spent. The mayor pledged early on in the protest that she was going to put $100 million towards community investments, whatever those might end up being. Um, what those are exactly uh, will be the subject of, you know, various task forces and group discussions and, you know, people voting on their preferred options and that sort of thing. The city council kind of changed that a little bit. They split it up into a few different pots um, and are taking a few different approaches to how they want to invest that money. So it's a little complex, but overall, you could say the protests made an immediate impact. And despite the desire to see SBD's budget cut a lot further, Davis and Good are quick to emphasize the investment side of this defund debate. Defunding the police is something that people don't understand what it means. So when you say defunding the police, people's antennas go up, right? All of a sudden, the hair on the back of their neck stands up. They're like, oh my God, no police? Oh my God, we can't, we can't do that, right? Because we've been indoctrinated to believing that all of our protection and community safety only can come from the police, right? If we get outside of that box of the brainwashing that we've been in, um, indoctrinated with, and we look at what does real public safety look like? Public safety is get the resources into the hands of the people that don't have them. Give opportunity to people that don't have opportunities, right? Anywhere that there's a, a plethora of resources and, and, and an abundance of finances, 
there's no, there's not a lot of violence. Anywhere that there's not, there's a lot of violence. It's just a fact. So how do we fix that? We start making sure that people have their basic needs met, number one, and have opportunities, number two, right? With support and community help and systems help to get them down that path of success. What do you think of when you hear the, the phrase defund the police? What do I think of? I think of opportunity. I think of possibility. I think of creativity. I think of public safety. Those are all things that come to mind when I hear defund police. This isn't about police as much as it's about resources. And there's a limited amount of dollars that can go towards creating safe communities. And since those dollars are limited, we should use those in a way that get us to a safe community the quickest and the surest way possible. And policing historically hasn't done that. In fact, as we look at recidivism rates and the, the frequency of folks who are arrested, detained, released, arrested, detained, released, then it would prove to the fact that policing really isn't solving for this but merely sweeping it aside until the leaves fall again and they need to get swept up again. This is not a solution-based model um, of public safety. Defund the police is way deeper to me than just defunding the police. It's a whole big political, social, and economical purpose behind it, man. They, it just needs to start there because we need to understand that policing black and brown communities is not working for us. At this point, Davis makes a big gesture toward his Zoom background. It's a group photo of a bunch of Community Passageways participants. One of the kids in this picture, right now, his dad's in prison since he was two years old. The kid's 20 years old, 21 years old, I think. Dad's in prison since he was two. His mom is his co-defendant in federal charges that he's facing. He don't have no real family. He calls us his family. Community Passageways is his family, right? This same kid that we've been working with for about a year. I got him a job doing case management for another organization. The kid is, has a caseload of about 20 people. He's helping people with housing jobs, helping them with mental health stuff, getting them plugged into different services. This kid is out serving the community. He's been doing it for months now, making good money. Went out and bought a, a nice little car, got his apartment, just had a baby, get, has, getting ready to marry his girlfriend, his baby's mama, all this kind of stuff. And, we, and he, he started working on his finances and his credit because this is what we talk about with him. So we're, and he just got pre-approved to buy his first home. At the same time, I'm working on the, with the federal courts trying to get his charge diverted out so he doesn't go to prison. It looks good to keep him in the community because he's doing awesome. That's public safety. Public safety ain't putting him in handcuffs and locking him in prison. That shit hasn't worked, bro. We'll be right back. This last year has changed the way we talk about race, policing, public health, politics, the climate, the arts, and the economy. And in many ways, it's changed how we talk to one another. But it hasn't stopped the conversation. 
This spring, the Crosscut Festival will keep that conversation going with a week of events where journalists, politicians, artists, and newsmakers will talk about our uncertain present and our possible future. We'll explore the issues that are shaping our country and our world. This year's guests include PBS NewsHour anchor Judy Woodruff, travel expert Rick Steves, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, former Secretary of Labor Robert Reich, and many more who will be announced on March 8th. Join us at the Crosscut Festival, May 3rd through the 8th. For more information and to purchase tickets, go to crosscut.com festival. Okay, back to the show. Okay, so as Davis was saying, he thinks locking people up is not helping public safety. It not only disproportionately impacts the black community, it just doesn't work. So Davis and Good and a whole bunch of people, especially those involved with the groups King County Equity Now and Decriminalize Seattle, are already developing lots of proposals they do think could work, starting with community-led research. King County Equity Now launched the Black Brilliance Research Project in September. Nine teams that are currently engaged in the work, collecting data, doing analysis. Through another nonprofit, Freedom Project Washington, the group secured a $3 million contract with the city of Seattle to see it through. We are starting with an investment of $3 million to connect with community where they are and relying on their expertise in order to facilitate the process of scaling up and building true models of community safety. One recommendation to have already emerged from that effort is a form of community-led emergency crisis response. We need a wraparound personal and public crisis emergency response system. The need for a holistic crisis response. And then Dominique Davis's organization, Community Passageways, is partnering with a handful of other nonprofits to pilot what could be yet another kind of on-the-ground crisis response team. Me and a team of people got together. We decided... We don't have time to sit back and wait to see what's going to happen. So they're planning to create safety hubs in three communities across the city, staffed with outreach workers who will provide all kinds of support for young people. We're going to try to make it where we want to show, look at the, the rate of violence before we came into that, those three communities and then after we came into these three communities. Let's see how many shootings, how many violent crimes, how many robberies, how many burglaries. Let's look at those statistics and numbers. Money from the mayor's office has gotten the project started. But Davis says they need more. The money that we got from the mayor's office is just enough money for us to get into these hubs, to hire the staff we need to hire, and to be able to provide a few um, resources out here to get the ball rolling. But we're going to have to find more money and more resources to build this up. Theoretically, these are the kinds of things that could help replace at least some of the need for police officers. But like Davis says, to have any hope of doing that, Organizations have to both prove that it works and then scale it up a lot. And that can be hard to do without lots of city funding and cooperation and political support, which seems to be there right now. Those cuts to the police department are not as deep as many protesters wanted this summer, but this budget does put new money into new hands. They have demanded solutions to the systemic discrimination that undermines the safety, health, and economic strength of our BIPOC communities. The problem is, well, one problem is, that some of the people agitating city government for this kind of change are still skeptical. 
Sean Good, for example, was asked to be part of Mayor Jenny Durkin's Equitable Communities Task Force, the body that will be helping make a lot of decisions about where new money is going. But he promptly left as soon as he joined. I participated in an initial meeting and it became very clear that the cake was essentially baked and that the task force was asked to be the frosting so that we could bring it back to our people in a, in a palatable way and, and community would be able to digest it as something that was whole and equitable for them. And I wasn't willing to serve in that capacity, um, primarily because the people who I wanted to represent in that space didn't want me there to represent them. One major concern he had with the mayor's approach is that, in fact, the millions she's pledging in alternatives to the police are not and will never be directly tied to defunding the police. Durkin's plan calls for money to be taken from a to-be-determined fund and not from funding for the Seattle Police Department. Which is a problem if you believe the institution of policing itself is doing a lot of harm. You can't put one brick in the house with, with your left hand and then tear two bricks out with your right hand. At a minimum, you have to have a one-to-one ratio. And if you were to divest from law enforcement in the city of Seattle by 50% and take those 200 and some odd million dollars and pour those 200 and some odd million dollars into public safety alternatives, then you get closer to a one brick to one brick ratio that still, still leaves us at a net zero gain. But at a minimum, at least we're not still building up the types of divisive walls in our community that keep people from a- being able to access the types of resources necessary for them truly to be safe. Is there and should there be a direct nexus between funding alternatives to police and defunding the current police? Where you land on the answer to that says a lot about kind of your politics right now. Um, Jenny Durkin's basic approach is no, there there shouldn't be a direct nexus between those two. And yeah, I think that's I think that's a lot of the reason why Sean and others didn't support her approach and her task force is because that nexus was basically off the table. You know, I think I think a lot of the activists imagine creating a new system whole cloth that is sort of runs parallel to the system that they have totally lost trust in. We start looking at community providing safety for the community. We want to get where the police don't need to be involved, where we're, we have a where we're able to manage our own community and our own people and our own system. I want to develop our own system of safety. And yet we're in this sort of awkward situation where in order to build that up, they need the support of the system that currently exists. Another outstanding issue here is not everyone wants the city to be creating new systems of public safety. The voices of the people are not really being heard. You know, you have a few politicians in there that have their own agenda. I think the adults in Seattle, for the most part, are like, what is going on here? We're already seeing plenty of frustration coming from the people who think any cuts to SPD and any public investments in untested alternatives are actually harmful. And politicians saying, hey, let's uh, let's get rid of our police department. I mean, this, this is just unbelievable, Mike. There are the more extreme voices on this like Seattle Police Officers Guild President Mike Solon. The crime will visit your doorstep, and it's because of the policies that this city council is basically bullying towards all of us. And the more moderate ones, like former Seattle City Council President Tim Burgess. The defund the police movement, while I certainly understand where it's coming from and its motivations, and, you know, it's a visceral cry for justice, I totally support that. But you don't you you don't do that in a way that causes harm. 
And I think Seattle city government is skating on the edge. David talked with Tim Burgess for a while about all this stuff recently, too. We'll hear more from him in the next episode. Anyway, one of the things that comes up a lot in these debates, the ones about whether the city council is doing the right thing at all. And there's going to be a significant issue uh, about staffing the SPD. They already don't have enough staff members. Is crime statistics. Long term is we expect to see crime go up. Certain crimes seem to be on the rise in Seattle. Homicides are up this year. Way up. The flashing lights marked the 49th murder for Seattle this year a city that's on pace for the highest homicide rate in years. And so some people see these numbers as either a result of the protests and the SPD cuts. You can't politicize public safety because we will all suffer. And evidence of that is what's occurring when they defund us. Or a sign that these cuts are incredibly ill-advised. But numbers, especially crime numbers, in a year of overlapping crises, not least a massive global pandemic that shut down the economy and put millions out of work, Numbers, you could argue, don't really paint the whole picture. Murders across uh, across the country are up. As some cities see a spike in gun violence this summer, the reasons why are now the subject of debate. And that started before these protests. That, That was a trend that we saw last spring starting to happen, that murders were up and gun violence was up. Mayor Bill de Blasio blamed the pandemic. It's sort of hard to prove definitively one way or the other. Um, which is what makes these debates so difficult. I mean, maybe maybe the protests and some of the Seattle City Council's decisions have had an effect. Um, there's also evidence to suggest that some of these changes were already underway, um, in part because of this pandemic. You know, from a, from a broad level, that's what's so difficult about sort of trying to imagine a new reality for public safety and policing is um, it's gonna it's gonna hit a really visceral backlash, and there are gonna be some scary statistics out there, such as murders are up. And that's, you know, it's sort of a narrative war. We're see crime rise. With a violent crime. Seems to be happening more so now that we're at the height of this pandemic. You're just going to have these levels of criminals who they know they're not going to get investigated. In dramatic, impactful change, even if it makes us uncomfortable. Dominic Davis sees this kind of data differently. Defund the police. Oh, my God. We're not going to have no police. People are going to be killing everybody. There's going to be crimes. People are already killing everybody. What does community safety look like? Community safety can no longer look like the way that we, we perceive it to be because the shootings have risen up, the, rising up the charts, right? Violent crimes are shooting up the chart all over the nation. People are getting shot uh, every day, all day. And there's police still out here everywhere. All the police can do is respond to a shooting. They can't be at the front end of it, making sure that the same kid that just shot this kid probably wouldn't be out here shooting this kid if he was going to school, playing sports, had a job, had housing, you know what I'm saying, had his basic needs met. I'm not saying it's the answer to everything, but I promise you the violence and the crimes would just start. If the kid's mama or dad or grandma, whoever's raising them, had what they needed, we got to do something different. You'll notice the core message here, over and over. People getting what they need, that's public safety. This is what Dominic Davis is saying. It's what Sean Good is saying. It's what a lot of the defund activists are saying. And it sounds a whole lot like what Seattle city leaders are saying now, too. 
I, I personally believe that public safety um, comes first by people having what they need. Um, and that means access to affordable housing. It means that they have uh, economic justice so that they truly can get the same opportunities as other people in Seattle. It means good health care and child But here's the rub. It might feel pretty obvious by now, but it bears repeating that stating this kind of thing as a goal and making it actually happen are two very, very different things. They are not proceeding, in my personal opinion, with the kind of rigorous analysis and care that these uh, areas demand. Some of those statements are more like, I support the goal of working toward a reality in which 50% of the police department is no longer necessary there's gonna be an enormous pressure for that money to be spent in a way that not only shows promise, but that people feel on the ground. That's next time on This Changes Everything. Thanks for listening to This Changes Everything. This episode was reported by David Croman and produced by me, Sarah Bernard. The story editor was Donna Blankenship, and the executive producer was Mark Baumgarten. Our cover art is by Greg Cohen. You can subscribe to This Changes Everything on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please rate and review us. It really helps other people find us. For more on This Changes Everything and other CrossCut podcasts, go to crosscut.com podcasts. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. This Changes Everything is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. You can listen to all of the episodes in this series right now at crosscut.com or wherever you get your podcasts.